Today we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we've come to chapter 6, and this section of chapter 6, we're theming it by this theme called Flip the Script. So the primary metaphor that Jesus is using in this section is the image of the theater. And so he's going to tell us, don't do these three things like you're performing on stage. You're not an actor performing these things. And he's highlighting the sinful tendency that all of us have to turn even our best deeds into means of self-promotion, self-exaltation, self-display. So in chapter 5, he warns us about the dangers of our actions and things that we recognize to be dangerous, like anger and lust and divorce and internal and external fighting or slapping people in the face. We, we recognize those dangers. And then in chapter 6, he talks about the dangers of our good deeds. And he's going to give us three things where... It shows us at our best where we're giving to the poor. We're giving to people who are in need. A relationship with others marked by generosity and charity. Where we're praying to the Lord. The reason why we were created, to commune with Him. Our relationship with Him. And then our relationship with ourselves, where we're practicing self-denial. And Jesus is going to say that in all three of these things, there's a tendency to turn them into public performances. Where you're acting like you're an actor on stage. And this is all righteous theater. And so we're calling it flip the script because that's our sinful tendency. And we want to flip that upside down. Well, we're not doing these things to be seen and celebrated. We're doing them uh, because we love the relationships and for the Father. And so and so today, we're, we've come to the central section on prayer. On prayer. So let's read the passage. And we're in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Those are our actors. Those are the people who wear masks. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. That phrase, to be seen, is to be theatered, to display. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. And so today there's three things I want us to see about prayer. The power of prayer, the problem of prayer, and the point of prayer. So let's start with the power. So the power of prayer. The personal power. See, all of us need this desperately. We need this personally. 
There's a reason that prayer stands at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew has skillfully crafted the sermon in a very intentional way, and this section on prayer is at the very heart of the sermon. It's the center. There's 116 verses before it, 114 verses after it. It's right at the heart. And this section on prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is a masterpiece of profound simplicity. Children can memorize it and you can say it slowly in less than a minute, but we must not let the simplicity fool us. The effects of this prayer can be utterly life-transforming. They can transform the way you think, the way you see the world, the way you live, the way you act. In fact, in this prayer we find the key to everything that we need to know and be. Each one of these phrases is so pregnant with meaning. You could spend months on each one unpacking all that it is teaching us. Every single phrase gives us a whole window into the entire revelation of the Bible. And it's the key to everything we need to know and be. So think about this for a moment. Here's a couple things. It's the key. So here are four things that is the key for you knowing and becoming. Um, prayer, in general... And this prayer specifically is one of the keys to just knowing who you are and developing knowledge of yourself. You know, it's only in prayer that you can begin to know who you truly are. You know, one of our modern fallacies is that we think we are the expert on us, but the reality is that our heart is deceptive and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We, we all live in a profound state of self-delusion. And without real, deep, biblically saturated prayer, we'll always be self-deluded. We'll live a delusion. And it's only through prayer that you begin to see who you really are. But it's also only through prayer that you can begin to really change. You know, St. Augustine said that who you really are at your core is determined by the things you love, the things that capture your imagination the thing that drive your delights. And the only way really to change that, to get at the heart of what you love, what captures your imagination, what delights you is through worship. Worship is what truly changes you, and the fuel for worship is prayer and praise. So it's not enough just to change what you think. Sometimes it's very important and helpful and needed. It's not enough just to change what you do, even though that's very important and helpful and needed. Real life change happens when you ultimately reach the heart and the things that you love and the drives and the desires and the motivations. And it's only as you live out and experience this type of real prayer can your heart be truly changed at the deepest level. But it's also through prayer, that's the only pathway to really knowing God. You can't know Him except through prayer. Humble, dependent, genuine, prayerful, seeking through the Word, that's how we come to know Him. And it's also the key to handling all of the vagaries and varieties of life and experience. All of life must be turned to prayer. And this is where you can get access to tap into God's strength and God's perspective and God's viewpoint. Life is so seemingly 
random and variable and we've experienced this this year probably in ways that you never thought you would experience and the only way to navigate those experiences is to turn all of them into prayer prayer of praise and thankfulness for blessings prayer of of hope and prayer of petition where you're asking for help in difficulties and so the key to knowing yourself knowing god changing yourself is real vibrant life-giving prayer that's patterned after the kind of prayer we find in, in the lord's prayer this is the key to everything you need to do and be everything you need to know and become is found here so there are a few things in life that are more worthy of your sustained and systematic attention than this prayer but it's also so important for our church you know, last summer we did a series on Jesus' family values that come from the Lord's Prayer. Because these are His family values. And we're going to touch on that again next week and kind of give an overview of those things. But all families have values. All families, every household has a, a certain culture. Things that are stated and things that are explicit. But this is just how things are here. And what you find here in the Lord's Prayer are Jesus' family values. And there's two keys to the Lord's Prayer. They're God-centered and they're grace-saturated. This is the kind of family he's trying to create. And you see it broken up into two halves. The first half is God-centered. These are the commitments that Jesus wants his family, his church, his people, his bride to be committed to. And their commitments are all about God. It's God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, your your name, your kingdom, your will. They exist to worship and hallow His name. That's what worship is all about. That's why we exist, to worship His name, to hallow it, to honor it, to bring glory. That's worship. Kingdom is His work, what He came to bring and to do to expand His kingdom. That's His work. And then His will flows right into that. So the family values are they are committed to honoring his name, to expanding his kingdom, and doing his will. It's not our name, our kingdom, and our will that we're committed to. We are committed to his name, his kingdom, his will. Those are the commitments. And then those commitments create a certain type of culture. The culture that Jesus wants to mark his family are marked by these three things. Give us, forgive us, and lead us. Give us our daily bread, a culture of joyful dependency where we're dependent on him for all things, even our daily bread. And then we share it. It's give us our daily bread. This is hospitality, a culture that's marked by generosity and dependence and hospitality. And then forgive us. Forgive us our sins. This is a community of people that are committed to relational reconciliation. The type of reconciliation we're committed to is all relational brokenness. That's real reconciliation. And we say, forgive us. And it creates a grace-saturated culture. One of the great challenges is that in our culture right now, it's almost as if forgiveness and grace has been completely sucked out of the entire environment. And this is what you're getting. People's souls are choking and can't breathe because grace has been sucked out. But the culture that Jesus is trying to create is one that's marked by forgiveness. And then lead us. Lead us. A people marked by endurance and faithfulness. Don't lead us in temptation. Deliver us. 
And so what we see here in this beautifully concise prayer is the key to everything. Everything that we want to be as human beings, to really live and to flourish, and everything that we want to be as a church, to be uh, a light in a dark world and to be salt and light. So that's the beauty of it. But now let's take a moment and let's think about the problem of prayer. Because in this section, Jesus is going to unpack two problems that can seep into and stain every act of our devotion. And it's the problems are viewing prayer as performance and then prayer as magic. You see that in verse 5 of chapter You see that in verse 5 of chapter 6 where he says, "And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others." Their whole goal in their praying is to be seen, to put themselves on display. The world is their stage and they are performing. That's hypocritical praying. Jesus gives a perfect illustration of this in the Gospel of Luke, where he tells the parable um, of the tax collector and the Pharisee, who the Pharisee stands and prays publicly, and it's a prayer all about how great he is. Lord, I thank you that I give, and I thank you that I'm like this, and I thank you that I'm not like that bozo over there. Look how great I am. And Jesus says that's the exact kind of prayer that we don't want. That's prayer to perform. That's prayer that's all about self-promotion. And it's worth pausing and think, do you feel that danger? In one sense, it's easy to caricature others and say, oh, look at that wicked Pharisee who could pray like that. I would never do that. And actually, in framing it that way, you're doing the very same thing. And we have to feel that. We have to feel the danger of the temptation to self-promotion, especially when we're doing our good deeds. So it's worth thinking about in what area of your life. It may not be the area of prayer, but there is some area of your life that you're very tempted to self-exaltation and self-promotion. That's one of the dangers, prayer as performance. But the other is prayer as magic. He says, don't pray like the Gentiles. Look what they do in verse 6. It says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So see, they assume that the power of their prayer lies in themselves in the phrases they heap up, in their technique, in their performance. They kind of assume that prayer is kind of like magic, and prayer is like their magic wand, and if they can just cast the spell right and say the right words, that prayer is some type of magical little thing where they can and manipulate God to do whatever it is that they want Him to do. That that it's magical. Hocus pocus. They're spiritual wizards. And what they're actually doing is seeking to manipulate God, trying to get Him to do what it is they want, try and control them. And Jesus says, that's not real prayer either. That's the problem of prayer. That's not what it's about. And so it's worth pausing and just asking yourself. See, here, Jesus assumes that you pray. He's assuming that we pray. But is that a safe assumption? Do you pray? And then where do you feel the danger 
to display, to put yourself on display. For his audience, one of the primary dangers was in their spiritual disciplines. That may not be a danger for you. It may be somewhere else. But there's the danger. And then notice what Jesus says. The solution is you go into the closet, the inner room, the storehouse. That little word for the inner room or storehouse or closet is actually, literally, it's the storeroom. It would have been the only room in a Palestinian first century kind of peasant home that had a lock. And it was where you would have kept all of your food, um, your valuables. It would have been a small little room. And what's so interesting here is what Jesus is saying is you have to go to great lengths to get to the place where you can block out all of the distractions. See, the problem with the Gentiles is that their lips were moving. They were saying all types of things, but their mind was not engaged. And this is an incredible question for us. Where can we go to block out the distractions so we can focus? I know one of our problems in the modern world is we don't just have distractions all out here, but we have a lot of distractions in here. And there's I've got a number of books over here that talk about the way our technology and things like our phones, hold on, let me check something well, how things like always checking our phones have caused us to be unable to block out distractions and focus. And you know you've experienced this. I experienced this. There'll be times where I'm sitting down to read and I'll I'll snap myself out because I've just gone through three pages and have no idea what I've just read. I'm thinking, what is wrong with you? Or the other day, we had family over, and we were watching the football game, and I was sitting there watching it for probably 12 minutes. And then somebody came over and said, what's the score? And I thought, I, I have no idea. Like, what is wrong with you? You are sitting here watching it for 12 minutes and don't even know what the score is because we're so distracted, and we can have so much going on in our mind. But what Jesus is saying is you have to find a way, if you're going to experience real prayer, is get to a place, both mentally and physically, where you can block out the distractions. So what will that mean for you? What could your place be? How can you fight to block out the distractions? That's one of the main problems with prayer. But now let's think about the third thing, the point of prayer. Because the problem that the hypocrites and the Gentiles have here is that they think that the point of prayer is to build up their reputation so that it can be celebrated by people. Or the point is to manipulate God, to have some type of spiritual system where you can manipulate Him and get what you want. And if you can give the right incantations, then it'll magically happen for you the way you think things should. And what Jesus is pushing us towards here, and this whole section, is that that's not the point. The point of prayer is relationship. It's a relationship with your Father. The point is that you are sons and you are daughters with the Father, and you have brothers and sisters. That's why it's our Father. A new relationship vertically and new relationship horizontally. And let's think for a minute just about those two phrases. Your Father sees. He sees when you go into your inner room. Your Father knows. You know, maybe that idea that you can go into the closet into the storeroom, and that come, becomes a place where you can encounter the living Lord might have been one of the most radical things that Jesus says here. Every, every good Jewish boy and girl in the audience would have understood what it means to enter into the inner room and encounter the living God. 
They knew what that room was called. It was called the Holy of Holies. And it was a place that only the high priest could go once a year. And in that, when he went in, he was taking his life in his own hands. And yet Jesus says that I am coming to transform things in such a way where even your closet now can be turned into your own Holy of Holies, where you can encounter the living Lord. And there your father sees, and then you don't have to pretend or you don't have the pressure of trying to manipulate God with your praying because he knows. He sees and he knows. And the reality is if these two things that the father sees and the father knows become explosively real in your life, you would never be the same. We would never be the same. We would have a joy that no circumstance could shake. We would have a poise that no disappointment could break. We would have a settledness and a peace in our soul where we could enter into a world gone crazy, a world set on fire, and we could have a peace and a poise because we are confident in the fact that the, the Father sees and the Father knows. So you think about how this can change you. I mean, this can change you because it can usher you into the type of freedom that sons have, not slaves. And you can view God, as we saw last week, not as a boss, but as a father. And you can rest secure. And when you do, everything changes. Because what it means, if God is your father and he sees and he knows, it means that in many ways it doesn't really matter what other people see or think. Jesus is in this whole section saying, don't worry so much about performing for people. Don't worry about what they think. So he's liberating us, saying it doesn't matter what your boss thinks about you. It doesn't matter if somebody at work slices up your reputation. It doesn't matter if your kids don't get the grade or don't make the team. It doesn't matter if you have a chronic ailment and can never get over it. It doesn't matter if all your hopes seem like they've been deferred or put on hold. It doesn't matter if you put on 10 pounds and can't fit into your high school jeans. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people see or say. It just matters that he sees and he knows. And you might say, well, at this season, in this time, if he sees and knows, he knows and sees that I'm struggling. This is hard. I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm angry. How can God still be pleased with me or love me even though I'm struggling? If you just think about it, isn't that what loving parents do? I mean, when loving parents see one of their children who's hurting and struggling and anxious and angry and all of these things, their hearts go out to them even more. I know it's a line we've heard, and I can't remember exactly who said it, but they said that as soon as you have children, you'll forever be only as happy as your saddest child. Because as a parent, your heart is so intertwined with them, you'll never be happier than your saddest child. And you think about it, even if you have a great boss and you're really struggling, I mean, at some point, they're going to have to let you go. It's just the reality of economics. But if you have a great parent and you're really struggling, and even if they have to exercise tough love on you, they'll never let you go. And that's such a securing, freeing thought. Or if you think about there's something um, in your life where you lack today, and you're discouraged or disappointed because you haven't experienced something you hoped for or haven't received something you desired, maybe he's being a good father. And he sees and he knows. 
Maybe He's loving you. Maybe He knows that it's not safe to give you this thing that your heart so desires. You know, it's kind of like one of my sons has really been asking for a lightsaber, and fortunately those don't exist. But if they do, I don't think I'd give it to them, him, because I don't think it would be safe for him or anyone else in the family. So sometimes as God withholds things for us, and it's for our good. Or sometimes we ask, and he gives us something else, because he knows. And what the Holy Spirit intends to do through this prayer is to make all of the truths explosively real in our life. And I think if we're honest, when we look at our own prayer life, I think we would all admit that we're settling for far too little. Do you desire to have the love of the Father poured out into your heart? Do you realize that the greatest need you have, the greatest need I have, the greatest need we all have is more of the love of Christ poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit? He says your Father sees and He knows and we need to enter into the light. So just take a moment and examine your own heart. What is your perception about what prayer is for? Is it the religious duty that you perform so you can look good to other people? Is it the magical incantations that you can express so you can get from God the things that you want to get from Him? Or is it fundamentally about experiencing the love of the Father, experiencing the relationship of the Father? Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, would describe experiencing the love of the Father. He said there's just certain times and certain seasons where the Holy Spirit will just pour out the love of the Father and it washes over us. And he says it's kind of like if you've ever seen a dad and his kind of little son just kind of walking along and all of a sudden the dad just kind of scoops up the son and gives him like a big, you know, right in the, in the neck and the son squeals and giggles and he gives him this big hug and then he sets him down and just kind of goes along his way. And he says, you need to think about it. Was the son more of a son before that moment? I mean, no, he was always his son before and after. Was he loved more before or after? No. And Goodwin says, that's what we need to seek. That's what it means. His word for it was baptized by the Holy Spirit, where there's just this moment where you feel overwhelmed by the love of the Father. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of that phrase, but I love the concept and recognize that I think I need. And if I'm, if I'm honest, I know I need and I'm willing to bet that many of you also need at this moment just to feel that the Father sees and He knows and He loves. You know, this, this quote that's always both humbled and challenged me from Charles Spurgeon who talked about his Monday night prayer meetings. Those were his favorite meetings that, of his church. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great Baptist pastors from the 19th century. And Monday night they would have these huge prayer meetings. And looking back on those towards the end of his life, he said this, he said, some of us know at times what it is to be almost too happy to live. The love of God has been so overwhelmingly experienced by us on some occasions that we have almost had to ask for a stay of delight because we could not endure anymore. I mean, what a testimony. What a testimony at rare times being swept up in the love of the Father. Don't you need that right now? Don't you desire it right now? Let's ask the Lord to help us to experience 
His love in a powerful, transforming, and unique way right now. Now let's take a few moments and ask the Lord to pour out His Spirit on the church in a fresh and powerful way. Let's ask Him to unleash the power of true godliness for the revival of genuine Christianity and for the correcting of all that is wrong in the church. So Lord Christ, we ask that you pour out your Spirit on your churches from your throne in heaven. Revive your great work of restoration. May our times be a time of renewal, revival, and reformation. Oh Lord, let the kind of religious devotion that is pure and undefiled before you flourish everywhere. May your true kingdom come, which is not focused on eating and drinking, but on righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. May the wilderness become a fertile field. Let whatever is lacking in your church be set in proper order. Let every plant that has not been planted by our Heavenly Father be weeded out. Come to your temple like a refiner's fire to purify and purge and then renew and restore. May your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. And now let us ask the Lord to send relief to those churches suffering under oppression throughout the world. Let's ask him to provide support, comfort, and deliverance for everyone who is being persecuted for righteousness' sake. O oh Lord, help us to identify with those who are suffering and imprisoned for the testimony of Jesus, as though we were imprisoned with him. Let us be as one with those who suffer. Remember that we are a part of one body, and that body is being abused. Send them relief from heaven above. Deliver your saints from the hateful enemies. Bring them out into an expansive place where your blessing abounds. O oh Lord, awake with your mighty arm. Stir yourself and show your, your strength. Intervene on their behalf. Strengthen the patience and faith of your suffering saints. Enable them to live and hope and wait for your salvation. Do not let them give way to discouragement. Or despair. Hear their cry when they cry to you. Sustain them and renew them. Foster in all of them endurance. And even though their outer man is wasting away, renew the inner self day by day. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. <laughs>